Welcome to today's podcast on equity and diagnosis. This is a special collaboration between the National Academy of Medicine's Scholars and Diagnostic Excellence Program and the Society to Improve Diagnosis and Medicine's Fellowship in Diagnostic Excellence. Both programs are funded by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, with additional support from the John A. Hartford Foundation. My name is Uxher Abbott, and I'll be hosting this episode. I'm an ophthalmologist and medical retina specialist with the Veterans Health Administration. I focus on leveraging teleophthalmology to promote health equity in rural communities across the upper Midwest. I'm passionate about the intersection of innovation and health equity, as I believe we must develop new models of care to reach people wherever they are and help them live their freest, healthiest lives. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Monica Lipson. Dr. Lipson is a board-certified general internist with significant leadership experience in clinical, educational, and administrative arenas. She currently serves as the Vice Dean for Education at Columbia University's Vagilos College of Physicians and Surgeons. She is the Rolf H. Skoldiger Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and has been serving the generalist community as president-elect, president, and past president of the Society of General Internal Medicine. Before Columbia University, she served at the George Washington University as a professor and vice chair of medicine and division director of general internal medicine. Dr. Lipson previously worked with the government, where she served as the director for medical and dental education for the Veterans Health Administration, allowing her to oversee the undergraduate and graduate medical education across the nation within the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dr. Lipson, thank you so much for joining. I'm so excited to talk with you today about equity and diagnosis. Thank you. It's a pleasure and a real honor to be invited. Let's jump right in. Can you tell me about your professional journey and how that journey informs your current work in equity and diagnosis? I've always wanted to be a physician. I have had the great fortune to actually participate in pathway programs, really starting at the grade school level in inner city Chicago as really the sort of template of achieving a medical career coming from a family that didn't have any healthcare professionals in it. And what's important about that and thinking about diagnostic equity is that thinking about equity had been always part and parcel of my pathway, sort of thinking about goals in terms of becoming a physician. I'm a generalist at heart. You know, I could never say that there was anything that was compelling enough for me to sort of say I want to study that, except for this idea of what do we do with ambiguity? And so I enjoy that intellectual space, specifically as a journalist, in terms of trying to figure out how to problem solve. I've been trained as a health services researcher and then really found my career in education and clinical design and have spent just as much time sort of thinking about how to create a pathway for all physicians to think about diagnostic equity, but also how do we design specifically primary care systems to also think about ambulatory care delivery systems to think about equity. And I think the intersection there has really started really thinking about quality metrics, specifically in the VA. I spent most of my career in the Veterans Health Administration system. And it was 
a ideal place to think about issues related to equity and access because we all believe our veterans should get the top line care. And then when you're able to look at a integrated large national system and start to see differences in outcomes based on race, based on income, based on a huge cadre of demographic factors, it leads you into this question about how do you actually think about equity? How do you actually think about what's happening in the exam room that might be playing out here? What's happening in our system The VA is a pretty much well-oiled system when thinking about how to deliver care, but why are certain veterans getting certain outcomes and others aren't? And I think that question and how do you actually teach people to think about it is sort of what's drawn me to this. I spent a lot of time thinking about outcome metrics, be it at the population level, your clinic panel level, even the learner level. Why are certain learners when we think about how physicians learn, how they think about clinical reasoning, why are some learners able to pick that up easier? Why do some learners struggle? This is all about equity and sort of thinking about how do we problem solve. And I think just recently with the focus on diagnosis as a major issue in terms of thinking about error, thinking about diagnostic error, thinking about diagnostic errors not equally distributed across the population, I've sort of become highly interested in that as president of the Society of General Internal Medicine. And then, quite frankly, on the interpersonal level, I have had the great fortune of mentoring other colleagues throughout their career, one most notably Christina Gonzalez, who was a fellow in the program last year. And she brought this topic to us at the society, to me in particular, as somebody who we've worked together on multiple research projects. And her project and story was compelling that we thought as a society, we would go ahead and endorse some of the work that she's been doing and thinking about how to create educational tools to teach people about this issue of diagnostic equity. I hear in that some really core threads that I'm excited to explore. And I was just wondering if you could add a little context to how you see your direct work taking care of patients and your policy work reinforcing each other. I think the best informed policy is based on the actual interaction that happens in the exam room. I think we get better outcomes in terms of our policy outcomes, i.e. are people endorsing what you say when you can speak from a personal story? But I think in terms of what you're really trying to get at is when you're sitting across from a patient and you're trying to create a differential, and if you're actually thinking about the whole person, you are thinking about the social determinants of health. You are thinking about what access that person has to other health-enabling resources uh, in their environment. And so I think a good clinician, you are actually thinking at the policy level, even in the exam room when you're trying to deal with the individual in front of you. I think it is that level when you actually understand that sometimes what might look like patient not engaged or I personally am having a bad day 
if we actually look at the system level issues about what might be causing that, we actually get to policy implications often policy implications around the social determinants of health, be it educational, be it access to food, be it justice, be it a whole host of other issues. I think, you know, we communicate often in medicine in stories, I think. And we think about, just as you're saying, that connection between moments in the room and your understanding of the broader themes and forces that affect those moments. Can you share a moment in your career that underscored for you this the critical importance of your work in health equity? Hmm. I think in Washington, D.C., uh, where I was practicing in the midst of the pandemic, I had a patient who had multiple readmissions to the hospital. He was a patient of mine in my primary care clinic. I always got a little highly suspicious. How did he get to my primary care clinic? One of the nurse practitioners from the hospital found me. I didn't know this person. She's like, I'm hoping you can help us take care of this patient. And maybe I was flattered, maybe overly flattered (laughs) and said, sure. And then she told me the story after I said, sure. And it was a patient who was experiencing homelessness. It was a patient who had a spinal cord injury due to prior gun violence and gang activity, prior incarceration, who was just getting admitted over and over to the hospital with recurrent decubitus or wound infections just because he just couldn't properly take care of them being unhoused. If he could be properly housed, we could heal those wounds, take care of him. And engaging with him and the fact that a nurse practitioner right from the hospital came to find me said there's something special about him right like most of the time people aren't sort of trying to find this one-on-one handoff right we have we have electronic medical records to try to make referrals we have other mechanisms to try to do that but she really came over and really was sort of saying to me i think you can help him and i'm like I'm not sure I can help him. But engaging with him, I found out he was a very involved father of two small girls who he did everything in his power to provide for them. They were stably housed with their mother. And his whole goal was that the girls never knew how hard he was having it. And so if you had encountered this gentleman you would not have thought that he was, if you had let your biases take away, this is not the kind of prototypical father of the year that you would have thought. But in the room, he would stop our exam to take a call from his daughter because he said this was important and she called. So that tells me something about who he was. When I said, we can get you into a shelter and we can try to get you housed, we have resources. He said, you don't understand what it's like to be in a shelter when you're wheelchair dependent. They're not set up for people with disabilities. In fact, I've been more harassed and more, I have more problems when I'm in a shelter system than when I'm on the streets fending for myself. Tell me more about that, right? Like I would have never made that connection, but come to find out, our shelter systems are not set up. I think we're hearing more and more about that in the news. Are not set up for people with, who are who have disabilities. And the fact that he would make that trade off to me was really interesting. 
and the fact that actually every clinician that engaged with him, because he would get at times frustrated and angry and sign out AMA, everyone would actually try to do something different. Like they would, they would say, okay, maybe tomorrow, maybe next day. And because our policy was you have to go from hospitalization to shelter to housing, he was falling through the cracks. If we had a simple policy fix that he could go from hospitalization to housing, we potentially could find housing for him. If we had parental support services for him, so that the thing that he was most proud of and most able to do, that we could support him in doing that, it might actually help him support him in doing all the other things he needed to do. So it is that case where because of his disability, even at the most marginalized, he was even further marginalized because of that. So I think that's kind of an example. And I think about him all the time about what I what more could I have done? Because the other piece of it, his recurrent admissions to the hospital for sepsis was actually housing him would be much cheaper. In three hospitalizations, he would have paid for his housing. I love the way you, you relate that, because I think just like you were saying, that connection between patient and policy, I can... I can see as you're describing this process of seeing the whole person because we're talking about why he's there to see you, but then all of these sort of radial lines going out into his life and his family situation, his housing situation, his challenges, having access in the care even that he needs. Thank you for that gift that really knits that together. And I think that in a way that is really beautiful and, and lets us sort of see what you're talking about when you, you talk about seeing the whole person. I want to pivot a little bit to talk a little bit about where we're going. I want to get your thoughts on how you see the future of health equity evolving and what changes or initiatives we should be advocating for to make progress in this area. I think, in fact, we have to keep focusing on health equity because I think I think as the political forces around us that health equity despite being an equal opportunity improvement, might get lumped in with other activities that are under threat, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, for example, or in education. But the reason to focus on health equity, quite frankly, from a policy point of view, is really about cost. I mean, like, frankly, if you just wanted to take an economic argument here, ameliorating disparities actually would save the healthcare system money. That's a very simple way to sort of think about it. I think there's many more reasons to think about it, but that's one. I think one of the questions we have to ask is, what is the comparison? I think one of the problems is specifically around diagnostic equity is if the comparison is always unfortunately, also the stereotypic white man or white woman, that actually might not be the ideal health state. Maternal mortality is an example of that, is actually best health state for pregnant people is not the default of those who identify as women and white. It actually probably is Hispanic, those who identify as Hispanic, 
specifically in California, right? Like, like so, so some of what happens, I think, from a policy point of view and a part of what we have to do as we research in these areas, is I think we have to also ask the question of what, what is equitable? What is the goal? Because I think now that we're understanding the more nuances of population and outcomes, that the assumed equitable place is probably not there. We've learned that in the VA, right? Like, like over-treatment of cardiac disease in white men is probably not the place, right? Medication management is probably better. I think that's something that we don't really raise the flag on a lot. And I think that's something to sort of think about. I think about how networks and health systems that are under-sourced, under-resourced, but also take care of underserved individuals are actually the most at risk in any of our policy decisions and so might leave the game. And the classic example is you're seeing this in the closure of rural hospitals, right? Those, those are probably the very places that we don't need to be losing health care in designated health shortages areas, but we are. That's going to compound this rural inequity in care of just of geographic place. And if you ask question, people questions at 30,000 foot, do you think that because of where you live, you should have differing access to healthcare? I, you know, most people would probably say no. Yeah, I was, there's this recently looking into some of the, I think it was the Shep Center at UNC and their estimates, it was, I think since 2005, 200 hospital closures in rural critical centers. That's something I think about all the time is think of our, the core project of our democracy as delinking demographics and destiny. Who you are, where you are, should not affect right. your freest and healthiest life. And we really need to focus on what it means for a right to be inalienable and then work backwards. Let's start from that position and then work back. I mean, you think about your own work in tele in teleophthalmology, right? It it offers access, but still, once you find something, what's the next barrier in terms of that transportation determinant that's got to be overcome? Absolutely, it has to be. Uh, it has to support on multiple axes, and I, I I think about that in our program development. If you find something, what's the next step? How do you support a person's overall ability to access care and stick with care, engage with care? What barriers are you identifying? And, and something I think about a lot in telehealth is we need to look into unanticipated effects of telehealth, unanticipated potential exacerbation of disparities with people who can access technology for telehealth or not, whether there's something that we're not capturing about the in-the-room visit with the doctor where you talk and you go through the results and does that provide a higher level of engagement for the next visit? So those are things I think we really need to look into in using telehealth to promote health equity. I'm passionate about that. I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And we have to think about broadband, right? Just even that, right? Like are the towers set up so that you can get a signal, right? Like it's amazing you go overseas and every place is fully covered with self-service, right? They made a leap from nothing to fully cellular. And we have areas in this country, you can't get a good cell signal. Yeah. Speaking of that, just, I, I won't detour on this too much, but my family is originally from India. 
And so that transition, the skipping the landline stage, I just seen it and and it just a, a huge economy evolved around cell phones. And I think about it all the time is that those aren't always necessarily smartphone based capabilities. A lot of them are just that standard Nokia and all the things that can be done on that. Let's just agree that the right is there. And then we just innovate in the context. That is what I'm really passionate about. I also, I want to come back to something you said that I thought was really powerful. And I think it's such a wonderful insight that I really want to highlight. But your discussion of if we only talk about disparities, then we may be in inadvertently establishing one patient population as the norm and anchoring them as the normative face of medicine, and then just calculating the distance from that person rather than thinking about what a healthy, free, happy life in America looks like. And so that's something I think is a a subtlety that I, I really as soon as you were talking about that, I, I really lit up because I thought that was such a great point. And in fact, there might be more of those exemplars, but because we're not studying all populations, because we don't get data on everyone, we are missing that here in, in my lifetime, right? The cardiovascular risk of those who have immigrated from Southeast Asia. And now because people from that community entered medicine and said, hey, what about us? Let's think about what's happening. I'm watching my family. And then it moves the science. It moves the science to sort of think about those areas. So I do think to your point, we have to think about it because it's easy to default to the data I have as opposed to the default to the data that I should have. Yes. I want to take uh, continue on this future theme. Just coming back, we were talking about broadband and telehealth and this hope that new frontiers of technology will help us address health inequity. And I think we're in the midst of a conversation in American society, but definitely in medicine about artificial intelligence. I wanted to get your thoughts on how you think artificial intelligence could be leveraged to address health equity issues and improve diagnosis. And then maybe also the other side, what your concerns are, because I think we're, we're thinking about that as well. It's an opportunity similar, if you want to think about the World Wide Web, where it's a democratization of knowledge, right? So when my mother goes to the doctor, she's called me, right? She's gotten a consult. What should I ask? What should I be looking for? Versus she could actually put that same question into a national language processor and get an answer, right? And she could put her symptoms into a generative AI and come up with a differential. So when she went to the doctor, that maybe that distrust that she may or may not have with the healthcare system goes away. She didn't have to spend, you know, a kid to go to medical school and college to get that that same level of expertise that she could take with her in the exam room. She could just pop something in to AI. So I think that's one way. I've thought a lot about that also in terms of who gets to be a doctor and what who has access to that. And, you know, AI, if we think, you know, how do you write an essay? 
AI actually helps with that. It democratizes this English, how well do you write, right? Because the AI could fix that, et cetera. So same kind of process. So I think that that's an opportunity that anybody can use and take with them. And different than the World Wide Web, because it's generative, it will go with the next thing that somebody puts in. And so it will learn from that and move on. So I think that's one possibility of AI. I think we were talking about who's not at the table. AI has the ability to pull in data from lots of different populations, from lots of feeds, lots of things, and be able to potentially hotspot in a way that hadn't been done specifically in communities that had not had access to that just based on looking at the data. I think the danger is what we've actually already seen in thinking about algorithmic medicine, how research, whether or not it's real or not, has actually promulgated algorithms, whether they're in a generative space uh, and artificial intelligence or not, uh, in the diagnostic tools, has actually done a disservice to those particularly marginalized populations. And so I think that threat is continues to be real. And the problem with artificial intelligence is I consider myself a pretty smart person. I consider myself pretty engaged in the conversation. I work in an institution that helped develop these these very algorithms. But do I know what the algorithm is actually doing? Do I really understand what's underpinning that I can be smart and go, yeah, it's just a bunch of regression lines, right? Like, but but in general, I don't understand or I don't know what the algorithm and, and is pulling data from. And I'm relying on people who do, but like that's a new job, right? Like that that's going to be a new job for somebody to really have a level of translation between what is happening at the algorithm level, how the algorithm is generating that in end users. And we know bias, you know, if you think about most of our large data set are sitting in the electronic health record, right? Like it's not AI is not creating new data, right? Like it's just pulling data that already exists. You can just process it faster than I can in my human brain. So, you know, it's going to pull in everything in the, in the electronic medical record. We already know the electronic medical record is filled with bias. We know that and how the note is written, what terms patients are referred to, whose ability to be called their chosen name and who's not. Like that all plays out in the electronic medical record. If that's the basis of the data that's helping to develop health-related algorithms, we know there's going to be bias. I think that that's something that is fascinating about this moment in that we are, in some sense, fighting some of the same fights that have framed the history of the country. And we are also confronting a landscape of rapidly changing technology. And looking at the intersection of that, I think of how different the world may appear to a young person in medicine now than it did when I was in medical school. So I, what, I, what I would like to sort of pull from that is, Confronting this new landscape, but animated by some of these core challenges, what advice would you give to health profession students, undergrads, who are interested in focusing their careers on health equity? 
So the delightful thing is actually that's not the problem. Their their interest and their focus and their ability to come to the table with a set of knowledge that I currently don't have, definitely did not have at their stage in training is beyond belief. So it's not it's not the desire. It's not even the skills and competency because they actually are probably more competent in thinking about equitable approaches. I might need to teach you how to do the cardiac exam, but you've actually already thought quite well about how cardiovascular disease is presenting and showing up in various populations. So that's not the issue. I think it is looking at our institutions and sort of saying, are you up to the challenge, right? Like, are our institutions up to the challenge? Because I know and I believe that in some ways that's where the problem is. The way that we've organized medicine, the hurdles I have to get through to get through the system of health professions, education might be too steep. You know, we laugh about some of the things that happen to us as students and trainees. They probably just should never have happened. And I think this generation actually acknowledges that they probably just should never have happened. And there's no reason for them to have to go the same road we did. So I guess on one hand, the passion and desire is there. And I think the expectation that the system must change to actually provide equitable health care is there. I think they also have to, they said some grace, right? Like that these are large systems and they're going to take some time to change and really try to understand how the system is that we got the way that it is so that we can either dismantle it or fine tune it. I don't think the answer is right there. So I think that's a piece of it. And then I think really trying to, back to what I said before, really trying to understand the underlying principles of how this data is being gathered, utilized, and aggregated is really going to be fundamental to the future physician. I don't think people really think, they think there's something fancy happening. They're not thinking, oh, it's just pulling all the data from manufacturers' electronic health record and pulling it together and trying to find patterns. But when you think of it that way, you actually can now break down what the potential problems are, as opposed to it's some black box and some data comes out on the end. They need to continue their critical eye to what's being developed and assessed. And I think they'll help us think about what are those other populations? What is the comparison? and what the comparison should really be. I think that's, that's a place that they could focus. That's a place that they could really shine and show that they've added to this conversation. I want to close a little bit here with your thoughts on, we're doing this work, we're passionate about it. What is your vision of a bright future where we have made significant progress. We feel good about what we've done. What does that look like? Well, one thing is we don't look at disparities and say, okay, and walk away. Like I, I think that at this point, we find it acceptable. Amelioration is acceptable. I think that if we continue to focus that the goal is health equity and 
there are some problems that are going to take a more incremental approach. And there are some problems that we can actually leapfrog with the science to try to solve to get to equity. That to me would be a better place that we just wouldn't find these disparities that, you know, were first articulated in the 80s, right, based on data in the 60s, that we just wouldn't accept that as the status quo for our country. Moving to the place where we are all engaged and saying our goal is to get rid of disparities and focus on equity and make sure that every person has the right opportunity for health every time, that would be the best. And, you know, for me, that that I train future physicians and scientists who actually have that part and parcel of who they are and how they see the profession. So to me, that's the goal. I think even this conversation of diagnostic equity, because I've spent a lot of time with a lot of health services researchers and population health folks in my career, medical decision-making wasn't necessarily focused on equity, you know, 20 years ago. But those were some of the best minds in sort of thinking about clinical problem solving. To me, there is hope. The focus that the National Academy is doing, that your fellowship is doing, the Moore Foundation has contributed to, really has said, this is important. We know that patients are dying, quite frankly, because of diagnostic errors and because of inequity in those diagnoses. That, to me, is a bright spot. That's why we keep doing this work. Thank you so much, Dr. Lipson. This has been incredible. This has been a gift. Thank you so much for your insights on equity and diagnostic excellence and the thought processes that we're going to need to work on and change in medicine to get to that bright future. 